Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now I'm delighted that my guest today is one of Britain's best-known journalists. Toby Young is currently a columnist for The Spectator, but in his career he's done a huge number of things. He founded a magazine called The Modern Review back in the 90s. He wrote for Vanity Fair. He also wrote the best-selling book, How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, which was then made into a film. Now, since then, he's also become a champion for free schools. He's founded four of them. And now he is about to launch a new organisation, which is called the Free Speech Union. Thanks very much for joining us, uh, Thank you, Toby. Um, first of all, can you tell us what is the Free Speech Union? So the Free Speech Union will be a, a mass membership organisation mm. that stands up for the speech rights of its members. Um, so um, if a member um, uh, ends up being targeted by um, an outrage mob mm. on social media because they've dissented from the prevailing orthodoxy or inadvertently used a taboo word or something along those lines, uh, we will defend them on social media. We'll mobilise our members to come to their defence and praise them on social media. Um, if they've been accused of something, we'll pass the evidence. We'll try and make sure that, that they're put through some kind of due process and not just presumed guilty and immediately cast out in the way Roger Scruton was mm. um, when um, George Eaton, I think it was, at The Spectator, yeah. Yeah. Um, plucked various things he'd said out of context, put them on social media and immediately whipped up a kind of uh, uh, blood-crazed feeding, feeding frenzy, which ended with him uh, losing his job yeah. as a government advisor. Um, in addition, if people start circulating petitions or open letters, we'll start counter-petitions. Right. Um, if uh, they start... Um, um, uh, writing letters or emails to the person's employer will start a letter writing or email campaign to urge their employer uh, not to fire them. If, if, if they're put through some sort of disciplinary process or if they're fired, um, we will, I think, in most cases, provide them with legal assistance. And if they do go to law, we'll help them crowdfund so they can uh, fight their case. Um, we're, we're in the midst of a, a really censorious moment, yeah. uh, not just here, but across the Anglosphere, a kind of new climate of Maoist intolerance in which any dissent from the prevailing orthodoxy, any, 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 any opinion which falls outside the increasingly narrowing confines of the Overton window, um, anyone responsible for uh, challenging uh, the prevailing orthodoxy, even if they're on the left. So, you know, we see it uh, with Selina Todd, yeah. Professor of Modern History at Oxford, currently has to have um, a security guard to accompany her uh, from her rooms to the lecture theatre because she has had the temerity to challenge some of the more outlandish claims of the trans-Taliban. Yeah, yeah. um, so we, we want to create a, a, a more tolerant atmosphere. We want to protect people uh, from being punished, from being singled out in this way by these uh, uh, twitch-fork mobs. Um, uh, and, and I hope that we can give people a bit of courage uh, and also give the mobsters, you know, pause for thought before they come after people like Selena Todd in future. So, so would it be right to say that, say, for example, to take a recent example of Alice Stewart's, would that be... That's a perfect example, is it not? Alice Stewart is a perfect example. Yeah. Um, here is a you know distinguished, much loved broadcaster um, employed by ITV for forty years. Um, uh, one careless tweet, uh, and you know even describing it as careless is, yes, is exactly. putting it quite strongly. Yes, I think. Um, yeah. uh, you know um, he quotes Shakespeare, mm, mm. Uh, and uh, and you know to make a technical point um, uh, in the Shakespearean quote in question. Uh, 
the, the, the individual, the quote in Measure for Measure is aimed at, is not being compared to an ape. It's a simile, mm-hmm. uh, not a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and um, uh, nonetheless, because of this one tweet, uh, which, which the person, uh, uh, he, he didn't even include this person in the Twitter exchange, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, because he was using this passage from yeah, measure to yeah. measure, uh, measure for measure to describe this individual in, in some sense, um, the individual took offence, accused him of being racist, and he was, you know, thrown under a bus. I mean, Yes, he resigned, but, you know, uh, IT, ITN left you in no doubt that they had acted to kind of force his resignation. Um, you know, had he been a member yeah. of the Free Speech Union, we would have urged him to sit tight. Um, uh, uh, if he'd been brought th- put through some sort of uh, uh, disciplinary process, we would have, I think, tried to make sure a solicitor uh, was with him during those meetings. If they'd, if they'd gone on to fire him, I'm not sure they would, but if they had done, uh, we would have urged him to sue them for constructive dismissal and we would have crowdfunded uh, to help him pay his legal costs. Uh, so I hope that had he been a member of the Free Speech Union, this wouldn't have happened and he'd still have his job. The funny thing about things such as with Alice Stewart or with many of these things is that it seems to be a lot of it entirely phony in the sense that no one seriously thinks Alice Stewart is a racist. You know, this is what, almost the people who are accusing him, I'm sure they don't even believe it either. It just seems to be something which is about maybe virtue signaling or do you not find? It is, it is odd that, that someone like Alistair Stewart, yeah. um, whom, you know, everybody, I think, has a view of. They, they, they know him, they trust him. Yeah. He's been reading the news for, you know, 40 years. Yeah. Uh, for, 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 for him to be accused of racism... Um, on the basis of a single mm. tweet, mm. and you know, it, it, it take, and it takes quite a lot of kind of uh, you know interpretive license mm. to, to to deem that tweet racist. Um, you know, and set against that, you know, his forty-year track record, never been accused of anything like that before. And when he when he resigned, quote unquote, uh, lots of his colleagues, some of them women of colour, uh, t- testified to the fact that he's not a racist. So the fact that someone can be deemed racist. And the fact that, you know, their employer can take that accusation, that really serious allegation at face value and not think, well, if someone's made that accusation, let's put them through some sort of due yeah, process. Yeah. Let's weigh that one tweet against everything else we know about this person, mm. against his entire career. That mm. would be the fair way to go about it, not just to assume, oh, you know, uh, guilty until proven innocent. And by the way, we're not going to even give you a chance to prove your innocence. We're just going to toss mm. you to the wolves. Yeah. I mean, it really is disgraceful. This sort of thing cannot continue. But was there something which actually basically made you think to yourself, right, enough is enough. I mean, you know, because we complain about this growing sense of restriction on free speech. Was there something that happened or was there one particular incident which made you think, actually, I've got to do something? Well, yes, there was. Um, At the beginning of 2018, um, I was appointed to the board Mm. of the Office for Students, a new Mm. higher education regulator by Theresa May. Um, I was one of 15 non-executive directors. It was an unpaid job. Um, uh, I wasn't um, Theresa May's new university's czar, which is how it was uh, described. I mean, curiously, over the course of the kind of 
week in which um, in which I was monstered by first social media and then the mainstream media, I was elevated. So originally I started out as one of 15 non-executive directors. Mm-hmm. Then I became, you know, a key universities advisor, then a government advisor, then a university czar. I mean, you know, if I'd have held on, I would have become more important than the prime minister. Um, but uh, uh, because, um, I think in part, because I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a white, middle-aged, cisgendered, heterosexual, cishet, I think is the term, um, Brexit-supporting, Tory, middle-aged, balding, outspoken male, um, you know, the university sector didn't take very kindly to my appointment, didn't like the idea of me being a regulator overseeing their activities. So immediately the offence archaeologists went to work, sifting through everything I'd said or written, Dating back to 1987, uh, Paul Mason dug up uh, a a passage from an essay I wrote uh, in a book edited by Rachel Johnson, Boris's sister, uh, in 1987. And the essay was about class at Oxford. And I described grammar school boys um, in a slightly unflattering way, but it was self-deprecating because I myself was a grammar school boy at Oxford. Of course, he left that out, portrayed me as a a knob and a toff. Um, and uh, and you know, suddenly I was this ghastly snob and had no place uh, sitting on this uh, 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 as, uh, being a university czar. You know, mm. when the big problem is how to persuade more working class children to go to university, not to mm. keep them out. Mm. You know, as if you know, I need telling that. Thank you, yeah, Paul. Yeah. What the, what have you done to help the working class apart from backing Jeremy Corbyn, which inadvertently did help the working class because it meant Labour became completely <laughs> unelectable. Um, anyway, putting that to one side, another <laughs> no, another example, Peter. Um, I was. Uh, I wrote a piece for The Spectator in 2001 um, and it, it, in which I praised this obscure satellite channel, now long defunct, called Men and Motors. And there was one particular... I remember it. You Granada, remember Granada, Granada. There you are. I think, I think, yeah. Fantastic, uh, fantastic channel. And uh, if, you're into, if you're a bit of a, you know, uh, uh, if you're into cars. Anyway, they had this one, this one, this one programme uh, which featured kind of topless girls draping themselves over kind of fast cars and I praised this show in uh, in this piece and the sub-editor of the spectator at the time um, put across put the headline on it confessions of a porn addict you know, right. as a sort of gag mm-hmm. and you know I thought it was quite funny too until you know I think it was uh, 17 years later uh, some little online metal detectorist kind of found this in the spectator's digital archive took a screen grab, put the screen grab on Twitter, and then, you know, literally within half an hour, the Evening Standard ran a piece on, I think, page three with the headline, Pressure mounts on Theresa May as new university czar confesses to being porn addict. It was as though, you know, the the, the kind of Gestapo had had me under the hot lights the night before, and I'd just, you know, reluctantly confessed to to being a kind of uh, complete sexual deviant. I mean, it was, you know, and thank you, George Osborne, you know, I thought you were a Tory. Anyway, um... Anyway, there was just a deluge of kind of nonsense like this. Um, Yet some silly things I'd said on Twitter late at night after a couple of glasses of wine were brought up. This was like 10 years ago. Um, and, uh, And at the end of seven days, you know, there'd been an urgent question in Parliament in which, you know, various virtue signalling MPs, including some Conservatives, not Conservatives anymore, I'm glad to say, but people like Sarah Wollaston kind of lined up to, 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 to condemn me. <laughs> um, uh, thanks, John Burko, for granting that. Um, and then there was uh, there was a petition, uh, a change.org petition, which had 
over 220,000 signatures urging Theresa May to sack me. There was a there was a Guardian journalist permanently stationed at the end of my driveway. Yeah, would have brought him a cup of tea, Michael Gove style, but I'd run out of almond milk. Um, <laughs> and uh, in the end, I resigned. Um, yeah. uh, Partly to protect the other charities I was involved with, um, didn't want the kind of uh, yeah, the mob yeah. to um, uh, start turning their attention to them and saying, "What are you doing, employing Toby Young?" You know, charities have to remain squeaky clean for a variety of reasons. They're dependent on government funding and private donations and so forth. So I stepped down from the office for students, hoping naively that that would draw a line under the whole affair. This was after one week of, you know, leading the news. Mm. Um, and um, But that was naive. That was like throwing a hunk of raw meat to a shoal of piranha fish, yeah, you know. Exactly. Once they think you've shown some weakness yeah. and they can see blood in the water, they go completely nuts. You know, the, the blood-crazed feeding frenzy really gets mm. going. So I then had to step down uh, as um, from, from the, from the um, uh, board of trustees of the charity I'd set up to house the four schools I'd co-founded. I had to step down as a Fulbright commissioner. I had to step down as an honorary fellow of Buckingham. And I had to resign from my full-time job running an education charity, which worked with people wanting to set up free schools. So in total, I lost five positions as a result of this um, this uh, being, being, being targeted by this outrage mob. And uh, so I was, you know, well and truly cancelled, you know, cast out, uh, put beyond the the pale, told I had no place any longer in kind of polite society. Mm-hmm. So I know what it's like. Yeah. I mean, and it can be, you know, I don't want to sound like a snowflake, um, but uh, when you experience something like that, um, it can be really psychologically traumatic. Well, I was going to ask you because, I mean, you're being very, very amusing about <coughs> it now. But I mean, what actually was it like? I mean, if you've got someone at the end of the driveway and, and you've got you're losing positions, you're losing jobs. I mean, from every point of view, surely, sense of injustice yeah. or, and, and all of these things. I'll tell you, the, 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 the thing which really surprised me about it, and this, didn't, this was brought home to me when I spoke to someone else who'd been cancelled, who was a psychologist. One of the nice things, mm. I mean, there aren't many, but one of the nice things about being cancelled is you get to meet lots of other people who've been mm. cancelled because mm. they inevitably contact you or you meet them. I mean, I, I work for this Australian publication called Quillette. Yeah. We had this party in Toronto beginning of 2019, and there were lots of people at that party who themselves had been cancelled. And it was wonderful to meet these, you know, mm-hmm. for the most part, kind of really interesting mavericks and dissenters from all different areas of all political views, but who had ended up kind of, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, inadvertently often kind of triggering some tripwire and their careers, their lives were, were in tatters. But anyway, one of the people I met said that the, the hardest thing he'd found about being cancelled um, was um, uh, uh, having to abandon the just world hypothesis. So the just world hypothesis is the belief that we live in a fundamentally just yeah. universe, that yeah. the laws of karma apply. Yeah. And if you're basically a decent person and you observe the social contract, uh, then bad things, you know, gross injustices are not going to befall you. And when they do, you know, um, it's one of the one of the forms, I think, your sense of injustice takes. The reason it feels so acute is because you hadn't realized it, but you had been laboring under this illusion mm, mm, that you lived mm, in a just universe. Mm. I mean, a typical tip, this, this, this psychologist said, you know, typically uh, a pious Christian um, whose uh, young child gets cancer. That's a real test of their faith because mm. they think I've been an observant Christian mm. all my life. Mm. Why is God 
turning on me in this way. Um, and you know, sometimes they abandon their faith, sometimes they find a way of rationalizing what's happened um, and keeping their faith. But you know, that's a really extreme example. But for someone like me, an atheist, I don't believe in the laws of karma, um, it was a shock to discover that I did actually think that yeah, if I yeah. behaved well, if I was a decent human being, if I observed the social contract, that these that bad things wouldn't happen to yeah. me. I mean, horribly naive. But nonetheless, having to abandon this, having to kind of reconcile myself in the most kind of uh, brutal way uh, to to the to the kind of randomness of, of the universe, universe was, was 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 pretty tough. It reminds me rather of that great Woody Allen movie, Crimes and Misdemeanors. You know, where this is the whole crux of it, that he realises, in fact, the universe is not what he thought it was all, all the way along. But what does that actually do to you, Toby? I mean, does it, has it changed? Do you think you are a different man now as a result of that? Well, I was able to survive it, I think, um, uh, for a variety of reasons. Mm. I mean, and j- just to say, not everyone does. Uh, so there was a, a, a department chair um, at the University of Dartmouth who was written about in the New York Times towards the end of last year. Um, he was caught up in a Me Too case um, and quite unfairly treated. I mean, he, he had he, a group of women, um, graduate students in his department, um, had complained about some of the professors in his department. Um, they hadn't accused them of rape or sexual assault, but of behaving in various inappropriate ways. And he had done what was expected of him. He'd referred it to the Title IX committee at Dartmouth, and it was duly investigated by the authorities. So he felt he discharged his responsibilities as department chair. But the women then brought a lawsuit a year later against Dartmouth for, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, And what part of the lawsuit was that Dartmouth hadn't done enough when they'd first brought it to this man's attention. And in the lawsuit, they then accused these professors of much more serious um, uh, uh, misdemeanors, Mm -hmm. crimes like rape and Mm -hmm. uh, sexual assault, Uh, uh, but different to what they'd originally accused them of. Anyway, this man was then found, you know, he found uh, his colleagues turning on him, a hashtag on Twitter, like something like sort of do better Dartmouth started trending. A woman in the supermarket, his local supermarket, told him he should be ashamed of himself and he was a disgusting human being. You know, he had a wife, he had two young yeah, children. Yeah, yeah. He felt kind of ostracized mm. by his community and he hadn't done anything wrong. Uh, but he was just swept up mm. in the kind of uh, me too moral mm. panic. Mm. Uh, and and he'd, he'd had some mental health difficulties 20 years earlier. It all came flooding back. He had electroconvulsive therapy to try and treat his depression that didn't work he ended up taking his own life uh, towards the end of last year and he's not the only one there are sort of a, I can think of at least half a dozen people who as a result of being cancelled of being targeted yeah. particularly on social media have ended up taking their own lives nothing like that you know I never came close to anything like that um, partly because I have a stable and loving marriage um, uh, I'm a reasonably psychologically robust person. I've never had mental health issues. Um, lots of my friends stood by me. Um, even, you know, some people defended me in the press. Fraser Nelson, for instance, mm-hmm. wrote a really staunch, robust defense of me. Rod Little. I mean, my spectator colleagues were yeah. Andrew Neal. They were fantastic. Um, so for all those reasons, um, you know, I got through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, am, I, am, I, am I a different person? Well, I think I'm, I'm sort of, I, I think um, before it happened, I sort of thought that um, uh, I thought probably that that, that 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 there was some merit 
in trying to remain sort of on the right side of kind of mainstream liberal good opinion. Mm. Uh, James Dellingpole, who I do a kind of weekly podcast with called London Calling, uh, he would always kind of uh, take the mickey out of me uh, for not being prepared to say the more outlandish, provocative things that he said um, because I was sort of scared about falling out with, you know, my mates on The Guardian or whatever it might be. And I realise now that he was probably right, that that was a bit cuckish of me, to use his phrase, and that actually, you know, we imagine that... um, that our friends on the liberal left um, will stick up for us um, when we are accused of something like what I was accused of, when you're branded a homophobe or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, um, a transphobe um, or a a misogynist. You know, people you know and you've worked with for many years, um, colleagues, you know, on papers like The Guardian will stick up for you, but Mm -hmm. but no. Uh, In my case, they really didn't. Um, And uh, so now I've become kind of, well, I'll just call it as I see it and speak my mind and not worry about, you know, the, the likely PR ramifications because, you know, you're never going to get that stuff right under any circumstances. But it certainly has inspired me to set up the Free Speech Union. Um, I, I talked about it at the time. I thought, well, if one good thing could come out of this, I can start an organisation that can offer some kind of protection to people who find themselves in the position I find myself in. Because, you know, you don't know who to turn to for legal advice, for PR advice. Um, you feel really isolated, even if your friends are sticking by you. you know, yeah. Most of the time, you feel quite isolated and so if you can I really wanted to create an organization that can provide people with all the help both professionally and personally and psychologically that they will need if they find themselves you know in the eye of a storm like this when they're being assailed on every side by by this kind of uh, by these mobs I wanted I wanted to provide a kind of safe haven for them some kind of and a union seems like the perfect perfect organisation, the perfect kind of entity to provide that kind of protection. Once upon a time, unions used to provide that sort of protection uh, to their members. One of the reasons unions were set up in the 19th century was to enable, you know, workers to challenge the political views of their bosses without risking being fired. You know, not really anymore. Um, uh, you know, organisations like Liberty and Amnesty International, Penn, they used to stick up for people, uh, writers anyway, intellectuals, academics, who found themselves um, uh, uh, under fire mm. because they'd said something controversial or because they challenged an orthodoxy or a dogma. Mm. Uh, not anymore, not for the mm. most part. Index on censorship is still pretty good, but for the most part, you know, there's no one to turn to we've if actually, you find yourself in that kind of position. We just had this uh, case, I think Paul Embry, who was fired yeah. recently for, I think it's because he shared a platform with certain other Brexiteers at a, at a Brexit rally, um, which I think um, you know has now been in a battle with his own union, the fi- Firefighters Union. I it's guess extraordinary. It I mean, we, we, yes. the, the the treatment of people who um, were pro-Brexit uh, during you know the past three and a half yeah, years yeah. Uh, by some organisations, you know, th- treating them as though they were beyond the pale, the, the the position they were advocating was really indistinguishable from. Racism, xenophobia, um, calling them little Englands. I mean, you know what it's like. <laughs> I think but I, I mean, do. you would expect uh, you'd expect universities, uh, at yeah. least you know, trade unions at mm, least, mm. Uh, which supposedly uphold the free speech of people within their organisations. You'd expect them to have been a little more tolerant of some viewpoint diversity, but no. This is actually going to be one area, surely, universities, where you're going to have maybe your work cut out really, because this is where free speech is really being suppressed, isn't it? I mean, I, you wrote recently in The Critic 
about an incident where you were speaking at a debate, but there was some poor guy you met afterwards yeah. who was virtually, you know, like... It was you know, extraordinary. ...ostracised yeah. for being quite a mainstream... Well, just a mainstream tour, yeah. I guess. Um, uh, yeah, I, I had a pretty tough time. Um, it was a debate mm. uh, during the general election, and I was sticking up for Boris Johnson, and um, I was, you know, um, uh, insulted uh, in the chamber, called a paedophile um, uh, by the co-president of the Durham Labour Club, um, called a nonce by the lead speaker on the other side. And this was in a fairly respectable, yeah. you know, debating society in one of the oldest universities in England. So I was pretty shocked. Um, and in the bar afterwards, this young man came up and introduced himself and told me his story. He, he, he was a small C conservative. Um, in his first year, he'd, he'd contributed to this forum that had been created, this online forum for uh, students that were due to come to the university. Uh, he was the first person in his family to go to university, incidentally. He was from a Catholic background. Um, and he had expressed uh, you know, his view, uh, his religiously informed view, that um, he, he didn't think that Catholic priests should be forced to marry gay couples. He mm. thought that that should be you know, their, their, their choice. Yep, yep. Um, and um, he challenged the idea that, that trans women are women and indistinguishable from people who are born uh, as women. Um, he had, um, he'd, he'd, he'd said some um, pro-Israeli things in this forum. Anyway, because he'd effectively outed himself as, as you say, as, a main, as having fairly mainstream conservative views. I mean, maybe the view about gay marriage isn't as mainstream uh, uh, as all that, but you know, not, certainly doesn't it's make a him view, a, it's a, it doesn't make him a homophobe, <laughs> you know. No, no, no. Um, and I think he was accused of being in favor of ethnic cleansing because he'd made these sort of mildly supportive comments about uh, the state of Israel. Um, I mean, it was extraordinary and, and he was targeted by a kind of energetic group of left-wing activists on the Durham campus uh, in his college. Uh, so he, uh, someone slapped him in the face in the bar. Um, another person threw a plate at him in the dining hall and wrestled him to the ground. Uh, the woman, uh, the second or third year student whom Durham had assigned to him as his mother, quote unquote, and her a pastoral role to kind of look after freshers who are a little bit at sea, she encouraged a gay friend of hers to make a pass at him in some sort of cack-handed attempt to expose his bigotry, you know. I mean, it was all horrible, all ghastly. Isn't it? I it's, mean, this it's, is like... It's a kind of soft and yeah. not-so-soft totalitarianism. Yeah. Um, the intolerance for people with conservative yeah. views. And I said, you know, and the, the, the strange thing is that at Durham, you know, about 20% of the student body uh, is, is conservative. In most universities, it's about 10%. So if anything, you know, what happened to him uh, was unusually mild mm. compared to the treatment that uh, other out conservatives get at universities. Mm. I don't know if you saw that policy exchange report yes, uh, I did last year. Yeah. And uh, it revealed that 60% uh, of students who, who are pro Brexit uh, uh, were uncomfortable um, airing their pro-Brexit views in front of their classmates for fear of the repercussions and quite rightly uh, I think it, uh, we now realise. Didn't it also reveal something which is a bit of a, a wider concern which is that there now are people, there's a significant group of people who actually don't believe in free speech. I mean they, they, they sort of feel it's something that should come second or third. In the priorities, yeah, it's it's. I think I think one of the reasons that free speech um, is under assault in universities is because the regressive left, the intersectional yeah. social justice left, has succeeded. I think in embedding this narrative that there is a fundamental conflict 
between the rights of minorities, of marginalised groups, of women, uh, and, and the right to free speech. That the two are in conflict. And if you side with free speech, you're siding against those historically victimised groups. Yeah. It's complete nonsense. Those historically victimised groups have been, you know, the main, one of the main beneficiaries mm. of free speech over the years. You know, uh, the civil rights movement couldn't have taken place if America didn't have the First Amendment. Uh, we wouldn't have rights for women if uh, people hadn't stood up for free speech for women when yeah. these suffragettes were clamouring for universal suffrage. Uh, the idea that there is this conflict and that free speech isn't for everyone. It's just an opportunity. It's just really uh, an excuse mm. for male, pale and stale conservatives to kind of flex their muscles and shout down their opponents. I mean, it's mm. just complete nonsense. Mm. And I think to really, one of, one of the things I hope the Free Speech Union can do is to challenge this idea that there is a conflict between, you know, viewpoint diversity on the one hand and all these other kinds of diversity on the other. Uh, you know, if we want to live in a more open, um, uh, 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 humane, compassionate society. Um, the way to get there is not to uh, suppress yeah. free speech. It's no. to defend everyone's right to free speech. These, these things, you know, these are pretty serious sort of issues, Toby. And, and as I mentioned in, in the introduction, you know, you, you've sort of moved, it seems to me, in, in terms of your preoccupations. You've moved from, you were basically working at, say, Vanity Fair. You, your, your book was a sort of a mock, self-mocking uh, account of yeah. that. And, um, but you, you've become basically more political, have you not? I mean, was there, when did that sort of happen? Or were you always bubbling under the surface political? Well, um, I think I was always um, small C conservative. I mean, I'd gone through periods. Of your being, father was a very famous Labour man. My father was yeah. um, was a lifelong socialist, yeah. even though at one stage he left the Labour Party and joined the SDP. Mm. And they went back to the Labour Party. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so, and my mother was um, fairly left wing too. Um, and people often people often sort of bring that up as if. Um, as if to say, it's odd that if, if, if you have um, left-wing parents, but you yourself are a conservative, people think that's a bit suspect. You must be, you know, engaged in some sort of Oedipal drama in which you're constantly battling against your father. This is one of the kind of uh, memes that was used when I was, uh, you know, mobbed at the beginning of 2018. He's, he's obsessed with his dad. He's got this kind of huge psychological issue. He's constantly tilting against the kind of uh, imposing figure of his father. And that's, that's how to explain his politics, you know. And people say, Sometimes the same things about Hillary Benn, you know, um, who isn't quite as left wing as Tony Benn. So he must therefore be engaged in some sort of Oedipal right, right. drama. Yeah. I mean, you know, people don't say the same about if you if, if you have right wing parents and you and you're a left winger, then you're enlightened. You know, oh, then you've yes. emerged from exactly. the darkness, you know, <laughs> yeah. the bigotry of your, of your of the kind of the fog mm. you were enveloped in as a child in this horribly closed household you've emerged into the light and become a kind of yeah, psychologically healthy person i mean it's just complete nonsense um, anyway uh, yeah you're right um I've, I've certainly become kind of more political over the course of my career i mean i i guess i used to write much more about about culture yeah. in a non-political way yeah. and then i started writing when i got involved in the free schools movement i started writing more about politics uh, and now um the border 
between culture and politics has become much more porous. I mean, we are engaged in, and have been engaged in for some time now, a culture war. And that means that I can, I can write about both politics and culture uh, uh, in a way that comes quite naturally, having written about both for sort of, you know, 35 yeah. years. But there is a sort of a sense as well that these are really compelling things, aren't they? These, these cultural issues, they are really compelling issues. And so it, almost one can't ignore them. Uh, what, what's, what, what's interesting is that you, I mentioned the modern review in the introduction, which um, I remember reading, it really, I loved it. I should explain to people that this was a, uh, it was like a paper actually, wasn't it? It was a magazine. Yeah. But the whole point was that you were actually uh, writing about, as it were, the popular arts, but in a highbrow way. I think that yeah. was the point. But that was hugely influential, wasn't it? With, I mean, that, that's the way the Sunday Times covers them now, isn't it? Isn't yes. It? Yeah. The, um, uh, Andrew Neil once confessed to me that um, he'd 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 based the culture, the Sunday Times. Yeah arts and culture yeah. section on the Modern Review. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, it was a magazine that um, Julie Birchall and Cosmo Landisman and I set up That's in right. 1991 yeah. in my sort of bedsit in Shepherd's Bush. <laughs> I think I had Jan Wenner, the uh, founder of Rolling Stone, he created the first issue of Rolling Stone on his kitchen table. And I had fantasies of, you know, becoming this kind of multi-millionaire magazine yeah. publisher flying around in private jets. But actually, it, we never graduated out of my kitchen in my bedsit <laughs> in Shepherd's Bush. It was there for four years. It was born there and it died there. Um, but it was a great experience. As you say, it was, um, I think the motto was low culture for highbrows. Mm. And we employed kind of intellectuals and academics yeah. and kind of smart journalists to write long scholarly uh, pieces about things like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Madonna and many many the, the magazine was uh, uh, at that time you know now we think what's radical about that but back then that was quite a oh, radical yes, approach yes, you know yes. most people employed kind of slightly snotty critics to write about pop culture to review airport novels and did it in this kind of disdainful kind of snobbish way and so we wanted to we wanted to turn the tables on them and and actually celebrate what we really loved about popular culture but not in a kind of slumming it way mm. as a sort of uh, you know reaction to high culture but just saying actually some of this stuff is so good it deserves to be put alongside uh, some of the best stuff in high culture um, and, and and so that that was the kind of motif mm. but very quickly I think the broadsheets particularly the Sunday Times recognized mm. that this was the kind of direction of travel mm. and they immediately started changing the way they covered mass culture and poached quite a few of our writers. So Tom Schoen, who was the uh, literary editor of the Modern mm. Review, uh, was poached by The Culture to become the Sunday Times film critic. Not that I minded, it was great to kind of uh, be he's well. Still there, no? He's still there now, bit. isn't he, I think? He's, he's back, back, he's back. That's, he's he's, back. he's yeah. now doing that again. Yeah, yeah. he's actually a great critic. Um, I don't know, therefore, if you were, you were writing about culture at that point, and obviously have done since, I wondered, Toby, with Brexit, has your own cultural life, this is something I've been thinking about a lot, has your own cultural life altered and changed in any way. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, you wrote for Vanity Fair, didn't you? Um, I used to read Vanity Fair, and I enjoyed it. Now I can't really take it anymore because it's, it seems to be just one long Trump bashing mm. uh, thing. And, 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 also, and I wonder, is what you read and what you watch and, and, and listen to, has that been altered by Brexit? Have you found that sort of like, I, I can't watch the actor anymore or I can't do, you know, I can't read, I know what I'm going to get? I'd say, um, I'd say I haven't been, um, that, that, that I'm not so wrapped up 
in the Brexit drama mm. that it's completely poisoned me against the kind of ultra Remainers right. when I see them pop up on TV or on the stage and so forth. So, you know, I can still enjoy, you know, Hugh Grant in uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, mm. even though, mm. you know, mm. he, he tried to muzzle the press in Hacked Off and he campaigned for, um, I think, Chucka Amuna and various, I think all the candidates he campaigned for in, in December Defeated. all lost, mm. um, as, as we know. Mm. Um, but I think I, 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 I can kind of separate, I think, the man, the, 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 his performances from his kind of public persona. Right. Um, I think it's, uh, I mean, you're right about it's extraordinary the extent to which um, uh, so many uh, fairly mainstream liberal with a small L magazines and newspapers that used to have lots of readable stuff in them back in the day, back in the not too distant day, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Magazines like Vanity Fair, you know, mm. employed some really good writers, mm. not, not the least of which was uh, Christopher Hitchens, mm. um, who, who supported, you know, who, who used his column mm. in part as... Um, uh, a platform to make the case for the Iraq war um, and uh, was, you know, anti-woke before his time. Um, but now you don't see that diversity, that range of no. views in, a, in, in, in mm. publications like Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, The New York Times, mm. The Washington Post may be slightly less guilty of this, but pretty much mm. going in the same direction. It's as though they've all been captured yes. by the woke yeah. left. Yeah. Um, it's like the, 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 the left took this kind of regressive turn not everyone on the left kind of went, went along for the ride, but they've become the kind of dominant voice and they've cowed the kind of much more reasonable, um, uh, 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 progressive uh, members of the left. They've cowed them and they either kind of, they are, and, and, and some of them are kind of being forced over to our side. Someone yeah. like Andrew Doyle, for instance, yes, the creator exactly. of yeah. Titania McGrath. I mean, yeah. you know, describes himself as a socialist, mm. but he's almost kind of, he's, he's so unwelcome mm. in the woke church and he's effectively, you know, a, 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 an apostate. And of course, we know the left hates apostates even more than heretics. Mm. Mm. Um, so he's kind of been forced to kind of join people like you and I mm. in our kind of, um, you know, along with the other deplorable um, but uh, but I hope one of the things that the free speech union can achieve is to provide some protection mm. to the more reasonable members of the left uh, from being turned on and um, ostracised by their woke colleagues. You know, what we see with um, the way in which gender critical feminists are, mm. are being treated. Mm. I mean, it, 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 the extraordinary thing about that is that the kind of the trans Taliban who make life so difficult for gender-critical feminists like Kathleen Stock, professor of philosophy at Sussex University, is on the advisory um, uh, council of the Free Speech Union. Um, you know, she receives death threats, has things thrown at her. People set off fire alarms when she tries to speak, so she can't be heard. You mm. know, she's a member of she's a she's a member a long-standing member of the left. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, in the the, the, the trans Taliban are allowed to get away with it because you know. The, the kind of the Politburo within the kind of um, you know the woke Kremlin have kind of decreed that if you're you, you need to be a good ally of these kind of trans militant um, uh, uh, advocates and if, if you criticize them if you dissent from their orthodoxy even in the smallest way then you're you're an enemy mm. uh, and it's you know you, we have to try and reduce the power of that Politburo and make and create more space in our society for people to discuss issues like whether you should be able to self-identify more easily if you think you're transgendered. I mean, that's a really critical issue that affects 
lots of people. Should we have gender-neutral toilets? Should yes, trans exactly. women be yeah, allowed yeah. into women's changing rooms or women's refuges? Or should they be allowed to transfer from men's prisons to women's prisons? It's all happened uh, because of the, you know, it's as though we haven't had a chance to, to have a public conversation about it because everybody's too scared to say what they really think. It seems to me that the trans issue is sort of maybe a bridge too far. Maybe this is where things are turning. I remember we, we had Rod Little on, on, and he said this. He thought this was going to be... He had a wonderful phrase. He called it peak wank. Basically, this was going to be the, the ridiculousness of this issue was actually going to be the turning point. Well, interesting you say that, Peter. I mean, um, uh, I would love to think that we had reached, you know, peak wank. Um, but every time you think we have... Um, it yes. then gets worse. They double down. I, mean, I, I, yeah. I thought. I thought. You know, people thought Ricky Gervais. You know, he he gets away with um, his opening monologue at the Golden mm. Globes, which mm. was a kind of fantastic, mm. kind of exhilarating, mm. kind of full throated assault on the kind of uh, censorious high priests, high priests mm. of the woke church. Marvelous stuff. You think everyone thought this is a turning point? You know, uh, he's been able. To, he's he's attacked them, and he hasn't been cancelled. You know, he's still with us. He'll probably be doing the opening monologue next year if mm. the golden, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association give him enough money. Uh, but then, you know, two weeks later, Alistair Stewart tossed to mm, the wolves mm. for one careless tweet. Mm, mm. Uh, you know, you think that there's, you think that the tide has turned, and then and then it just starts coming in again. Uh, so I think we really need more organisations. I hope the Free Speech Union isn't the only one, but I hope it's a start. Uh, more organisations like this uh, that can stand up for dissenters, for nonconformists, for mavericks, uh, for, so, they, so, they, so they can speak out without risking their livelihoods, say what they think, challenge some of the prevailing orthodoxies, which need to be challenged, have engage in conversations about important issues that affect so many people without feeling they have to censor what they really think. I think, uh, obviously, it's a fantastic initiative and... and one that is utterly vital. I mean, I know we're ending now, but I know that this week you um, highlighted a situation in Canada where the government's talking about uh, you have to have a license for the internet to do shows like this even, you know, or mm. podcasts. I mm. think you tweeted about yes. it. Um, th that might not seem like what you're talking about, but it is an it area is, of yeah. free speech. Yeah. You know, these yeah. are the areas we're going to have to look at, aren't we? Well, they? The, 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 the danger... Uh, of, of what's happening in Canada um, and of the, regulation, the regulations mm. that our government is proposing to create and which they outlined in the Online Harms White Paper, which proposed you know, creating a new internet mm. regulator. Uh, it's the same problem we faced with uh, the, the, the hacked off, wanting yeah, to create yeah. a state-approved regulator of the press. The problem is that the people who want to become regulators are inevitably um, the kind of uh, purse-lipped, finger-wagging, left-wing scolds, you know, the Puritans, the sort of people that, that um, uh, George Orwell described as the boiled rabbits of the left. Mm. Uh, they're the people who will essentially decide what people can and can't mm. read, what they can and can't see mm. uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, what they, what they can see on YouTube. You know, it, it'll, be, it'll be a further narrowing of the Overton window. Um, and uh, so, you know, everyone should oppose any attempt mm. to try and replicate what's happening in Canada over here. And I hope that the Free Speech Union can, can, can lend its weight to the campaign against uh, the creation of uh, internet regulation, greater internet regulation in this country. I should just say, 
say, Peter, yeah. I hope by the time this is broadcast yeah. that the Free Speech Union's website is live. Right. We're kind of frantically trying to get it ready. Okay. It'll be at freespeechunion.org. Right. Um, and if you're interested in joining, hopefully go to the website. It'll tell you how to do that. Yeah. But if it's not, if, it's, if for some reason we're still, you know, it's still in beta and we're still road testing it, then just email me at uh, info at freespeechunion.org, info right. at freespeechunion.org, and, um, and I can process your membership application and make sure you get your card and um, everything else uh, you know, in a couple of weeks. So that goes for everyone who's watching who wants to do that, wants to join? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, we, Great. We, we, anyone can join. And, and also, will you be having any form of events, Toby? I mean, yes. something like that? I think one of the, one of the really important things that uh, we hope to do um, is to create... Um, public spaces mm. where people can have uh, difficult conversations, uh, uh, speakeasies in bars, uh, public debates in institutions like the Emanuel Centre, uh, Conway Hall, mm. Mm. Uh, debates at universities in conjunction with mm. free speech societies at universities, where people with passionately opposing views can model how to have courteous good-humoured, well-mannered conversations uh, and to show people that it's possible to disagree uh, but to remain on civil terms uh, and, that, and, that, and that merely challenging the prevailing orthodoxy doesn't actually uh, risk anyone's safety. It's not a form of violence. It's not going to send people into a spiral of psychological trauma. Actually, it's just a conversation. Yeah. And this has been a great one. So thank you very much indeed, Toby. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Um, thanks for watching. Uh, so what you're saying is, so we will see you next time. Thank you.